CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sanasi. I got David Z. Morris and Danny Nelson here today. Hello to you both. Happy Friday. Happy Happy Friday. Friday. Now, don't tell Zach, Will, or Wendy, but you two are some of my favorite hosts on the show. I was very excited when I saw the lineup for today. We are bringing you the top headlines for this wonderful Friday afternoon. David, you got our first one, and it is pretty... I don't even have a word for it. Wonky? Crazy? I mean, I feel like you're about to say weird, but unfortunately, it's just not that weird anymore. We have George Santos back in the headlines with a, a, you know, very marginally crypto connected story, which is that he apparently was soliciting. Well, it's not entirely clear what his endgame was in this particular case, but he was approaching investors with the claim that he knew a a Polish, I don't know, rich person, I guess, is about as specific as it gets, because we don't know the name of this individual or if they even actually exist. But apparently George Santos was telling people that there was a uh, Polish guy who wanted to buy some crypto and that in order to do that, they needed to start an LLC for him, which, as the, the story specifies, doesn't actually make sense on its face. People that they approached uh, ultimately backed out and nothing really seems to have come of this. But it's part of a uh, obviously much larger pattern. Those who are familiar with Santos will know that he was engaged in all kinds of shenanigans uh, to sort of fraudulently raise money or you know misappropriate funds in organizations, including his own campaign, to do things like buy himself cars and clothes. So crypto obviously would inevitably enter into this. And, you know, just another little data point, he is also uh, currently being prosecuted or is in the process of getting closer to prosecution. So we might get some more information about this down the road, but more than likely, it's just fake. uh, And he was trying to shake somebody down for some money. But why would crypto play a role in uh, this? Is it something that is just attractive to people who are gullible, perhaps? Danny, Jen, what do you all think? Yeah, I'll start off with this one. Uh, you know, you were talking about whether this is weird. It's really just normal now. Once again, we're seeing that George Santos is using creative ways to just pursue the grift. And 
I want to give him points for creativity, but I can't because it's just a new take on an old scheme, like like the headline points out, the Nigerian prince scheme in which someone reaches out to you saying that they're uh, an important person in a tough financial spot and you can help them rectify that and maybe you'll get some extra money uh, back for it. You know, I will say one thing you have to look out for in investments like this is if the people who are trying to pitch you on this wonky sounding idea want you to sign an NDA, that's usually not a good sign because if they have a good investment idea, then they're going to want you to talk about it. They're going to want you to tell other people how much money they made you. So if you, if you have to be hush-hush about the way that you're attempting to make money, that's one big red flag among, among many. Jen, what others did you see in this case? Uh, so many red flags when we talk about this character. I read this and thought, wow. Another dramatic uh, story. I thought it was really, I guess, not really interesting. I thought it was interesting that he targeted a loyal campaign donor, someone who has supported him in the past. And now the grift is, the grift is being executed on this person. I thought it was so funny how this like vague language was used. You know, there's this rich Polish man and his crypto assets are frozen. And all you need to do is open up an LLC to unfreeze those assets. It doesn't actually make sense. Like none of this actually makes sense. And so I'm happy that this person didn't get scammed. I think it's unfortunate that this headline is in the New York Times and people are going to read it and associate crypto with people like George Santos with with the crimes that he's been charged with. And it's unfortunate that, you know, maybe we're going to hear some influential people reference this and say people like George Santos use crypto. And so therefore it needs to be regulated. You know, George Santos has shown that he is not the best decision maker, that he has allegedly committed many crimes without the use of crypto. And I think that's an important piece to point out here. David? And I think we have another uh, story coming up, but just one last comment. I think that maybe the role of crypto here should be understood as a way to obfuscate that will confuse people who think they maybe want to be aggressive investors and on the front edge. But if you don't actually understand what's going on, if it doesn't make sense, that's when you pull out like this guy apparently did. And that's, I think, the lesson to take here is just because somebody says crypto and waves their hands, that doesn't mean it's a real thing. And in fact, it could be, could be a warning. So if you do not individually and specifically understand everything that's going on, walk away. Before we go off to Danny, I know you wrote a piece about Santos's uh, connections to FTX. There's like another little crypto angle there. And mm-hmm. I would love for you to explain that to the audience before we move on. It's really... So his connection to FTX is pretty tangential, arguably. Basically, he had a donor sharing agreement with the wife of one of the principals in FTX who was uh, under investigation. At least I'm not sure he's been charged yet. But George Santos did end up getting some donations from people at FTX because, you know, the way donations in politics work is you're individually capped. And weirdly enough, in this case, they decided to comply with campaign finance law since obviously um, FTX uh, and, and Sam Bankman-Fried, the charges in part have been campaign finance related. But in this case, they did kind of a swap. And so George Santos wound up getting uh, donations from some of the middlemen who were funneling donations from, from FTX illegally. Right, so uh, I will take it from here. Uh, we are talking about DAOs, my favorite subject to love and to hate, uh, specifically activist investors and their efforts to police or uh, pirate DAOs that they say aren't doing a good job. In this case, it was uh, Parrot Finance, a stablecoin and lending market on the Solana blockchain. This is one of those projects that 
back in Solana's heyday, raised maybe $90 million in uh, basically an ICO in which it sold tokens to investors. Well, the project two years in hasn't really done anything. Its developers aren't really getting much done. They're getting big paychecks. And that's caused a lot of people to be angry at them and caused a lot of hate from uh, activist investors who successfully pushed for the protocol to return its treasury to token holders through a buyback program. The big takeaway from this, I think that's most important to know, is just the breakdown of the money. So in this case, there's about $70 million, and a lot of it is going to go to retail investors. But a lot more of it is going to go to the, the team itself, which is going to retain a part of the treasury and also have $7 million for a continuous payroll for the next seven years. So this is causing a lot of people to say, well, what's going on here? Who's rugging whom? Are the activist investors rugging retail? Is the team rugging everyone? One thing that's clear is if you invested in this IDO back in 2021, you've gotten washed. So I think I'll start out with you, Jen. Have you ever put, uh, let's say, $500 in some ICO and just really regretted it a couple of years later? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I have. So I can empathize. But I mean, if you want to experience some drama, just head over to Discord and see what DAO members are talking about. And Danny, I love following your stories because that has become your beat lately. And it is so interesting to see what's going on as all of these communities try and experiment with decentralization. I think that the conversation and what's happened here when I read the story is so similar to conversations I've heard go on at other DAOs. People buy into this idea and to this concept and then nothing really happens. That idea and that concept doesn't come to fruition. The community loses faith in the team and then there's no recourse to be had. Um, I would love, David, before we get your thoughts, Danny, if you can just explain to me a little bit more about what happened here, because it sounds like the proposal went to the community, the community voted, but there was this rehearsal vote that caused a little bit of contention. And so does it seem like everything was above board? Is there some, it sounds like there's some blurred lines here. Well, anytime you're having votes denominated by the size of your bags, things are going to get wonky real fast. In this case, it does appear that the wallets that are associated with the final vote did hold what looks like a practice vote where they created something on Realms, which is the, uh, the governance platform where people can cast votes for Solana-based projects, and simulated a vote. Now, it's hard to say that that just simulating a vote is a sign of fraudulence, but it is a little fishy. And it also speaks to another really central issue in the story of Parrot Finance, which is that this protocol sold about $85 million of tokens to investors in 2021 as a governance token that would give them power over the protocol. And so the first and only vote that people have ha had the opportunity to use their tokens in is this vote to liquidate the, the, the treasury and to do this redemption and to do this buyback. So there, there's a good reason why they had to do a test round, I guess, because they never actually experimented with crypto governance before. So just right there, you know, that's a big red flag uh, that you really it, you just have to remind yourself that when you're investing in these types of protocols and these ideas, there aren't really any regulations that will hold these types of actors to account. Whether or not you think a cryptocurrency is a security, I think it's safe to say that investing in an ICO with an expectation, you know, that's a, a hard bill to swallow when 
there's a few regulations to keep you safe. What do you think, David? So I guess sort of try and first separate uh, two things here. One is the, the actual activist intervention to liquidate. Um, and the other is the specific breakdown of the money. So, I mean, the fact that the developers gave themselves seven million for continuing operations in what I think sounds like it's being pitched as an unwind um, is a little weird. So, but if you go into just regular capital markets, this sort of thing is not uncommon. Activist investors will come in and take apart something that is worth more than the sum of its parts and sell them off. Um, and that's kind of part of the capitalist process of creative destruction. And so if you're on the losing end of this liquidation, frankly, in, in my view, big picture, you don't have much to complain about because this is a project that wasn't succeeding. And if there's a treasury there that is worth more than the continued efforts of the developers, then it actually makes all the sense in the world to break that up and redistribute it uh, if there's a lack of faith in the team. To quote the great Marlo Stanfield from The Wire, uh, if you're complaining about this, you wish it was one way, but it's the other. Uh, I mean, this is just kind of on some level how, how it can work. That's separate, however, from the question of was the vote honest and, and did the uh, developers somehow engage in self-dealing here to leave themselves with, with a bag? And so I, I do think we can make that separation. That is also kind of the risk that you're dealing with is you don't even necessarily know in some of these cases uh, what wallets the developers control, and you can't in some sense. So I think that speaks to Danny's point about not just like this is a risky investment, but there are specific risks that are unique to the way these systems are set up that you need to be aware of. And you need to know that nobody's going to come and save you, I think, most of all. All right. We're going to leave it there. Safari Club recently released a report that dives deeper into the state of Web3 growth startups. The data reveals that more than $600 million has been raised across 71 companies focused on growth. Joining us now to discuss is Safari co-founder, Justin Vogel. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, great to be here. Thanks, Jen. Great to have you here. Now, before we get into it, I have a disclosure. I did participate in a Safari cohort uh, just because I'm a DAO aficionado or enthusiast, actually. <laughs> I, I won't call myself an aficionado, an enthusiast. All right, Justin, let's talk about this report. Uh, what are some of the key takeaways? Is Web3 getting its marketing right? Some of the key takeaways are that when we look at marketing broadly, uh, things have changed a lot. The 2010s were really the golden age of digital marketing. But by the late 2010s, the tides began to turn, uh, sparked by GDPR and a lot of other privacy legislation. And with Web3 emerging in the 2020s, uh, we need a whole new Web3 growth tool stack. And so that all these around 180 companies have dove into the space to uh, tackle this uh, question. So there are affiliate marketing companies, there are ad tech companies, ad networks, quests, loyalty programs, messaging, and more, all coming together to figure out what does marketing look like in the future of our internet. Just to kind of take a step back so, so we can fully understand the context here, this is specifically looking at growth-focused companies, I gather, as in sort of marketing outreach. I saw stuff about loyalty programs. And I think that's important because, you know, not only are we thinking about how the web is going to work advertising based, but we actually also want to get more people involved in, you know, Web3 blockchain uh, interface based stuff. How do you see some of the, the companies that you're covering here connecting to new users, people who have either no awareness of Web3 or, or no interest in it? And how does that edge of the growth map look, I guess? The segment that's primarily growing the pie today, I would say, is the loyalty companies. So these loyalty companies are primarily working with 
large Web2 brands to onboard their users into Web3 and engage them in the next generation of loyalty programs. So those are, are some of the areas that are targeting uh, Web2 users, but uh, all of these, these channels help target uh, Web2 and Web3 users on a variety of different channels, whether it's more Web3 native users via Quest or uh, Web2 users on ad networks and other affiliate marketing channels. And uh, Justin, I, I want to hear your take on this. Do you think that like the tools that uh, crypto communities are currently using, like Discord and Telegram, are those cutting it? Or do you think that for there to be true success for this market and for this ecosystem, it's going to need to turn to more Web3 native tools, such as Lens or other social networks? Yeah, I think that you know the tools that are being used today are a good start. And we're also seeing consumers broadly engaging more on these what we call dark social channels like Discord, Telegram, Reddit, uh, and now ChatGPT for search as dark search. Um, so I think that we will continue to see uh, both Web3 and Web2 consumers engage in them more broadly. But I am more bullish, and I think that Threads is a good example uh, for what we've seen on the, the Web2 side uh, for users and consumers appreciating the composability of their audience. I think it'll be really interesting to see how Web3 social responds and rises as that becomes a more popular concept with Web2 consumers. Justin, you mentioned loyalty as one of the standout areas of Web3 growth right now. Any standout loyalty campaigns that came out when you were collecting this data? One of the, the interesting ones that I, that I really enjoyed recently is 7-Eleven did a, a Web3 loyalty campaign, and they had a um, like widget where you're able to create your own slushy. So which of the flavors, how much of each flavor, and then mint an NFT of your uh, particular slushy combination uh, on chain. And they used a bunch of different, uh, more seamless, I'd say, uh, Web2, Web2-esque flows to create that campaign. So that was cool to see just five minute flow from scan the QR code to be able to mint that NFT. We talk about these loyalty programs so often on the show, and I've yet to go out and participate in one. And I think it's because they don't exist in Canada. I think they're all in the US and I stand to be corrected there, but I'm going to go out and find one and try it out. Justin, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. That was Safari co-founder Justin Vogel. All right, we are going to head off to the metaverse for the last story of the day. Yuga Labs has released a demo that shows the virtual playground it's been developing for its community. The Board Ape Yacht Club parent company announced its other side metaverse last year with its other deed NFT. Since then, there's been no set date for the actual release, the actual launch of this metaverse. Danny, I'm going to kick this one off to you. There was a lot of excitement when this was announced. And now it feels like we keep getting these videos, maybe music videos at some award shows. We get these live demos, but still we cannot enter the metaverse. What do you think about products launching these NFTs and roadmaps and then, you know, prolonging the launch of said product attached to that NFT. Look, Jen, maybe I'm just <laughs> a jaded aged 20 something. I probably am. But I will say I, the, the graphics of this, the other side that we're finally seeing that we can't even really enter yet. And I don't know if I'll even ever be able to enter it yet because I'm not a board ape holder. It reminds me of RuneScape, which has been around for much longer, already has a very built out world, has plenty good graphics, and it doesn't have any NFT anything to it. If anything, it has a bit of Bitcoin to it because a lot of people used to buy and sell Bitcoin back in the, the Bitcoin dark ages by going to RuneScape and drop trading. 
So I am just not convinced that this is a product that's needed or a product that's valuable to uh, the holders of these of these NFTs. Because, like, I don't know. I just, I don't see it. Uh, David, uh, uh, talk me off the ledge. Help me understand. I'm afraid I can't, because it's actually even worse than than RuneScape, um, which is, you know, if this is targeting people who are already holding bored apes or really any, like, Yuga asset that's not a crypto punk, not only are you going to be playing a a, a version of RuneScape, you're going to be playing a version of RuneScape that is constantly reminding you that you lost $200,000 on your avatar. Because these assets are all underwater right now, sometimes dramatically so. And so, like, if you're a holder right now, you don't even emotionally want to engage with this ecosystem anymore until things have changed pretty dramatically. Um, and, and so, like, I just don't see, like, this is, I think, a bigger point about the threat of hype, of bubbles, and of the financial hangover that results, because it's just a scar that you don't heal from if you sell somebody something that you say is worth half a million dollars, and six months later, it's worth 20K or, or less. And I think that that does speak to, you know, the financial elements of NFTs have downsides. And I think this is a big one. I mean, we saw it with Axie Infinity last year where you had a lot of people making quote-unquote investments on what turned out to be an unsustainable system, at least currently. And some of these things might come back, and it might be more fun to play with your apes when you aren't constantly being reminded that you lost money on them because Jimmy Fallon and Paris Hilton were clandestinely paid to promote them. But uh, you know, I think right now, just the emotional situation, leaving aside the product, the emotional and financial situation is so bad that this thing is like dead in the water, you know? Yeah, I think the article said that some some holders may be getting anxious here, you know, waiting for the metaverse that they bought this other side or this other deed to enter. I think there's maybe a lesson here for developers also, people who are building games, people who are building out these metaverses, you know, before launching an NFT and promising all of these things to people who are buying this NFT and investing in you, maybe launch a minimum viable product and see if people enjoy what you're building see if people want to be there and bring the NFT in a little bit later so people aren't waiting and becoming anxious. Organic and losing faith. Exactly. And losing faith in your project, losing faith in your leadership team. I think we would see um, a lot less stories like the ones we cover sometimes on this show if that happened. All right. That is it for The Hash. It's Friday. We hope that you all enjoy your weekend. You stay cool out there in this heat. David Z. Morris, Danny Nelson, thanks for joining me today. We will see you on Monday at 12 p.m. noon. You're watching Coindesk TV. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 